Welcome to Biohackers Podcast. This time, my guest is Wade Lightheart. He's an advisor to the American Anti-Cancer Institute, certified sports nutritionist, three-time all-natural na- national bodybuilding champion, former Mr. Universe competitor, author of the book, Staying Alive in a Toxic World. He's been in the health industry for 25 years and coached thousands of clients worldwide. And he's also the president and co-founder of Bioptimizers, the supplement company dedicated to discovering, presenting, and sharing strategies backed by cutting-edge research that lead to healthy, high performance. They are also one of the exhibitors and sponsors of the Barker Summit. And I'm really looking forward to this interview because Wade is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to how you can optimize your diet, digestion, supplementation, and also he has uh, a lot of personal experience of I guess, going to the wrong direction and then discovering how he can really regain his health back. So welcome to the show, Wade. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. So, I mean, you've been in the bodybuilding business, um, uh, kind of uh, looking from the inside out uh, yourself. And now you're working from the, uh, I mean, from the outside in, and now you're working from the inside out, looking at Mm -hmm. digestion, the digestive tract is a mirror of your skin and your general health and well-being. And you discovered that, I guess, through the hard way. So can you maybe elaborate a little bit on that? Sure. Well, I think, if you, you, you know, this whole kind of trend of biohacking and where it's going, if you look at it, it probably actually originated in bodybuilding. Bodybuilders, I believe, are the original biohackers. They were People who started, you know, ever since, if you go back, uh, there's the Indian culture, of course, there's a historical aspect of long celebrated in India. But if you, let's say, you look at the physique culture that started to emerge out of Eugene Sandow and the concepts, uh, who was a pretty remarkable individual, if you actually look at his strength feats, it's uh, unparalleled in a lot of ways. But you, you saw this cultivation of physique culture coming out of Europe and the development of kind of beyond gymnasiums into using mechanical technology, using levers and pulleys and weight training, and, and, and then the cultivation of a physique culture. Right. That later kind of emerged into bodybuilding. And then, of course, in the late 50s and early 60s, in came the advent of you know testosterone and growth hormone or exogenous hormones being used as performance enhancers, and which then spread through virtually every single sport uh, going out there. And then, uh, you know, then doping agencies came in and we need to regulate it because like we're kind of in that early stages in biohacking, in my opinion. And that is that uh, there are people out there trying a lot of different things with unknown consequences, unknown side effects. And then they report back. Sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're bad. Uh, yeah, sometimes, sometimes we need the, I guess sometimes we need the casualties of, you know, uh, yeah. this, this process of discovery. So some people, they, they end up as uh, casualties of supplements and so on and, and crazy biohacking yeah. devices. But in the end, that all advances the field. And I mean, scientists are studying these things. I remember uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was talking about the fact that the things that they were doing, like, let's say 20 years ago, is now just being discovered by science that how it actually works so as pioneers in terms of bodybuilding i mean um there's a lot of practitioners on the field who know uh that certain things definitely work in terms of 
increasing performance or results. Um, and we don't necessarily know yet exactly all the exact biochemical pathways and, and all, all the uh, correlating uh, aspects of it, uh, what it might also influence. But um, there's something to expert knowledge that comes from really pushing the boundaries of human body, like starting mm -hmm. from the Greek Olympics and uh, going up until this day. Correct. And, and, that's, and that's the beauty of uh, being involved in a passionate project. And I think that's part of becoming, of being a, what, what has advanced humanity throughout the centuries is people that are going to go out there and take a risk, whether it was, you know, the person that walked out of the savannah in Africa saying, I don't know what's beyond those mountains, or is it the latest and greatest guy today uh, who's trying some kind of light technology or some strange herb from the Amazon to see what the impact is on his cognitive health or, you know, right. that sort of stuff. It's the I same kind of you, philosophy. I want to yeah. ask you, who is your kind of uh, hero in terms of biohacking who existed long before biohacking? I'll let you give yours and then I'll give mine. Um, I would actually go as far back as the... Indian traditions in the Bhagavad Gita. If you look at the what was discussed inside that, it was obvious that there was advanced beings with advanced technology. No person from what we have represent as a 10,000 years ago historical aspect, which is most of what we've learned has been kind of a Europeanized trickle down filter of history that isn't necessarily accurate. And uh, looking back to the those epics, uh, it was obviously there was advanced technology. There was people who have practiced what is now deemed mystical, uh, who are, were able to reproduce extraordinary human potential throughout time, and which has been unbroken for thousands of years. And for the most part, science is just thrown into a corner. But now biohacking is actually revealing through, like, for example, brain technology, you know, that, hey, you know what, these guys that were sitting in a temple up at 18,000 feet and, and, and drying off uh, soaking wet towels and freezing cold weather seven times in an evening. Yeah, they do have some extraordinary capabilities and they do have some extraordinary uh, possibilities. And, you know, maybe there's a lot of things that are untapped in human potential. And so uh, kudos to, I think, the Dalai Lama uh, for making available a lot of, say, what I would say, people who are operating from superhuman capabilities. Uh, and, and providing that and putting those people into a scientific verifiable evidence to show, hey, you know what, there is something to this whole biohacking thing. So I think that's my, my originators. And then, of course, uh, you know, I think my early stages when, when I was 15 and I started reading uh, muscle magazines and the various experts, that was my first expert, my first foray. So, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger was obviously an influencer. I think he was a I mean, he, he transformed the fitness industry. Joe Weider said that 500, the subscription level of those magazines, of course, that was before the internet, was about 500,000 when Arnold came on the scene. And when Arnold retired, they were at over 7 million subscriptions and gymnasiums had popped up all around the world. So that's, that's quite a growth. You're right, right on, on those regards. And I mean, if you think of long-term meditators, uh, yogis, they've been always pushing boundaries of what the physical body and the mind is capable of. And, and I, I consider some of those ancient techniques as, uh, as the original biohacks, um, they, where they got that knowledge 
tr maybe through careful observation of the human body, maybe imitating animals, um, maybe maybe just sitting silently and going inwards. I mean, maybe it came from another place. So there is something profound there. And uh, when I look at some of the barking techniques that seem to stick, most of them come back to some of the very basics of heat alteration, of um, of breeding techniques, of uh, um, living by the cycles of nature, eating a diverse diet, uh, taking care of your body. I mean, yoga was originally designed to be able to sit long periods of time. So to be able to do that, you have to maintain your body. Uh, one of my great heroes was definitely Bruce Lee, mm -hmm. the, the movie actor. And he was experimenting with supplements very early on. So he was doing these protein shakes. If I remember correctly, it was like raw meat and eggs in a blender with some water. And that was his protein shake. Uh, and he also experimented with muscle electrostimulation. And uh, so he was running electric current through his muscle while he was training. And considering that that was when, like 60s, 70s, that was very early biohacking. And uh, I remember uh, reading something about movie directors talking about Bruce Lee was the fact that they had to ask him, make some of those movements slower because the cameras were not able to capture. It was too fast. So maybe he was really pushing what's possible in terms of human nervous system by, by some of these biohacks. Uh, but there's many examples of this uh, alive today. And now we are um, uh, discovering through scientific means like, okay, there is something into it. And it really makes sense to combine technology and advanced supplementation. Uh, but even supplement industry didn't really exist as it does today in the 60s, 70s, like, I mean, the amount of fields that we are popping nowadays compared to back in those days, like, I mean, you've been long in the scene. How have you seen it transforming over the years? Oh, massively. Um, and, and, and to go backwards, I mean, so we can go back. So the use of nutritional supplementation has been around for at least 5,000 years has developed through the sciences of Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic with the extraction of roots and herbs and and, and a variety of methodologies of uh, preparing them, storing them, and utilizing them for uh, great success for an extended period of time. And our pharmaceutical world kind of just is a branch outside of that uh, that has kind of evolved over the last you know 100, 150 years. That outside of that traditional passed down concept, I think still 80% of the drugs today being produced come from plants. Uh, and there's probably thousands of plants that are known by shamanic medicine uh, practitioners or Chinese practitioners or Ayurvedic practitioners that are still relatively unknown to the general public today. And, and so we have that branch. But inside of where we are today, what I would say the more Western commercialized idea of you go to the store and you buy your pills in a, in a, in a potion, that started... Uh, I'd say pretty extensively. The first health food store was around 1910 in California, uh, you know, with the uh, Bragg family. Paul Bragg, I think, opened the first store, the idea of, you know, putting these nutritional supplements together. And then I think the Joe Weider empire really expanded that through their media campaigns in the 50s and 60s, most of which was 
really low quality, not very good, uh, not very effective. Then along in the 19, um, in, in the late 1990s, and this, this is dating myself, there was, there were basically two camps in the bodybuilding world. Those who weren't doing drugs and those who were. And, 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 and there's a very big difference in the effectiveness. And then along came a guy by the name of Bill Phillips. And he started a company called EAS in Experimental and Applied Sciences. Now, if you go back to his origins, he was partners with Dan Duquesne. And Dan Duquesne and, and, and him, they had written a book, Underground Steroid Handbook, which was a way for you know, athletes in the bodybuilding world who were using chemicals to kind of share information and stories and do that. And there was a variety of things they were doing that was kind of offbeat. But anyways, he created his own company called EAS, Applied Experimental and Applied Sciences, and did very good marketing. He started creating promotional campaigns. But he created what I would say the first verifiable supplement that worked. And that was creatine. And that was developed by Ed Bird. But then he marketed. He marketed three products, a V2G product, a creatine product. Uh, it was like a vanadyl sulfate, a creatine product, and, uh, and a protein powder. All, this all was of in which the 90s. Were, this was in the late 90s, yeah. And they, they came to fame. They were in Colorado. They were doing these transformation contests. So the whole 12-week transformation contest came out of it. He wrote the book, Body for Life. And the thing is, is people would take creatine, and it worked. You got stronger, you got a little bigger, you had a little bit more energy and, and, and what that did, and he was so commercially successful, ended up selling that company for hundreds of millions of dollars years later, um, that it kind of created an explosion in the industry because now we actually were able to produce products that people could feel the difference, they could see the difference and it gave them an edge. And from that, we saw a lot of companies really pile into the market that was really moving beyond what I would call uh, just a basic deficiency kind of concept. Because most of the supplements that you would go to a health store tour was you're lacking B12 or you're lacking vitamin C or you're lacking these elements, which are all well and true. And that's fine. And those are legitimate components. But now we were getting into taking ourselves beyond a deficiency into optimization, into maximization, into cultivating uh, beyond kind of RDA concepts or these kind of, you know, government regulated, you know, ideologies that really, if you actually look at are, are kind of flimsy anyways. I mean, even the RDA, it's, it doesn't teach you anything about optimization. It doesn't teach you, okay, well, if I need 500 milligrams of vitamin C a day, well, what would happen if I took 10,000? Well, Linus Pauling said that there were significant advantages to taking massive dosages of vitamin C and, and you know, uh, Hoffer and, and Hawkins and Linus Pauling created orthomolecular psychology and started treating brain disease with nutrition in, this, in the 70s. And so, that, so uh, there's, a, there's, there's been these pockets, I think, that have gone in other groups. Right. But hmm. what changed everything was exactly what's transpiring right now. And that was the internet. The internet opened up channels so that biohackers could communicate. Uh, people who were discovering things could also share with audiences or people who are interested in going in that world. And this explosion has happened because we're really in a state in society where there is two, two deviating classes. 
There's the classes that are becoming what, as, as Yuval Harari says in his book, Homo Deus, they are becoming the gods. They are activating and using biotechnology, uh, biohacking technology, nutrition technology. It's going to go to genetic engineering and all these sort of stuff. We're already into hormone manipulation and things like that. And then there's everybody else who is just on a steady decline. If you look at the United States um, research information, that's saying that the average life expectancy in the United States has actually dropped to the last two years because of opioid crises that's right. happening. Plus yeah. the disability adjusted life expectancy in the United States is only 60 years old. And that means they expect people to live the last 15 to 25 years of their life on some form of debilitating physical condition. And that is accepted as the normal. Meanwhile, you have people in the biohacking camp who are increasing their IQ, uh, you know, long after it said it was fixed. They are able to demonstrate uh, physical capabilities that were limited to people in their 20s and 30s. They're now doing in their 40s and 50s and beyond that. And they are setting a new standard for what's possible as humans with the integration of technology. And so it's an exciting time to be part of this community and this Absolutely. movement and understanding what's, what's, what's mm. happening and why it's happening and why biohacking is absolutely essential if you want to be all that you can be, or even just survive the industrialization of society. There is definitely something happening in terms of pushing the boundaries that it's no longer just um, healthy doesn't mean the absence of disease, a diagnosed disease, but healthy means optimal meaning let's take hormones, for example, it's not enough to be within um, the reference range. It's let's take something like testosterone, but it's really finding the sweet spot where you get the energy and, and sex drive and, and uh, everything that goes into using something like that. And uh, personally, I've been able to improve my hormonal levels in the last 10 years without any external um, testosterone supplementation from when I was 30, I looked like I was a 45 year old man. Now at 37, I look like I'm a 25 year old man, just hormonally. So definitely in terms of biohacking, you can, without going for the drugs route, you can with mm -hmm. natural supplements and sleep and exercise, stress management, you can definitely, uh, and different biohacking technologies, you can, you can definitely optimize your, um, biological status and um, what I see very interesting in the in the fitness world is more and more focus on recovery on and not as much on the exercise part so I see a lot of professionals personal trainers moving into holistic coaches who are looking at your uh, not just diet in terms of adding muscle but diet in terms of fixing your gut fixing your sleep fixing your uh, brain fog even, or cognitive status, uh, going after uh, chief executives of companies instead of the, the typical people who used to go to gyms. So, so there's definitely a growing industry in the last couple of years uh, while creating the Barker Summit. I've seen a lot more people entering this space who used to be in the fitness world now learning a lot about biochemistry and and, and um, sleep and hormone optimization that goes beyond what they originally trained for. 
Yeah, well, you bring up something that's really important. I think it's something that people need to understand um, as an important caveat if they're getting involved in biohacking. I do believe that first and foremost, they have to recognize that many of the challenges they're experiencing today are a result of what I call the diseases of civilization. The advent of lights, you're in a red light room, for example, blue light technology, uh, Wi-Fi interruption, living in very condensed urban environments, the process, the, 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 mono, the development of monoculture farming over the last 60 years, the advent of herbicides, pesticides, and fungicides, the uh, packaging, distribution, and production of food, and, it's, and what that's done to our food uh, supply how that's impacted in a positive way, but also how it's impacted in a negative way, uh, and combined with these kind of current civilization challenges, makes a person who wants to have that optimal level of health or age gracefully or, 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 or hit the highest levels of performance, the first steps are not to go into, go take a bunch of drugs or take a bunch of chemicals, because what I've found in my own experiments and my own research, which has spanned literally now, uh, starting when I was 15 years old, so we're at 32 years, something, you know, over 30 years, that if you can't, like, anytime you add an exogenous drug into the situation, you're going to burn resources at a, at a faster rate. It, it, it's an accelerator. And so the first step in biohacking is let's work with the organism that I currently have. Let's understand my genetics. Let's understand my hormone profile. Let's understand my nutrition and my diet. And let's optimize all of those components first. Because most often, if you just do that, you're going to dramatically change the trajectory of your life. And you're going to extend, I think, uh, your longevity potential and also your peak productivity potential. I think where bodybuilders as a group got things off is they, they kind of optimized their diet for performance-based diet, and then they started adding exogenous uh, chemicals and stuff into the, the, into the mix to kind of move forward, and as do many athletes. What biohacking does, I think, is, is let's set the environment so that we optimize our physical environment, both internally and externally. And by doing that, we get to kind of like our best possible baseline. At that point, and generally what I have found is most of the best biohackers that have done that, that's a process that will take somebody anywhere from, you know, 18 months conservatively to maybe three to five years to, to, to really set that environmental conditions and get the habits, the practices, the tech that's going to get them optimized off. Then at that point, if they want to go down these roads with whether it's, uh, you know, kind of the, the more invasive or more cost prohibitive things, if you want to get into, you know, stem cell treatments or you want to get into exogenous uh, hormones and stuff, you're operating from a full can as opposed to a half can. And I think your, your dur durability in long term is going to be much better that way than trying to shortcut right. your way out of it. Many of these technologies didn't exist in the 90s was right. not easily accessible in the, in the 2000s like genetic testing so now there is a lot of laboratory testing that you can get into to optimize your health status so health optimization was not really that that well possible uh, without easy access to these kind of testing technologies like 10 20 years ago so it's definitely a pioneering field 
Now, you guys are focusing on gut health and right. uh, fixing digestion, looking at enzymes, uh, looking at probiotics. Um, I would love to dive deeper into it because there's a lot of research into the microbiome and its role in this whole biological ecosystem that I am uh, connected directly to my brain. Also, the enteric nervous system in my gut is definitely communicating with my brain. And um, it seems that many of the people who I know who have been into the fitness world, bodybuilding world, they burned out. So I, I, see, I know yeah. several, maybe half of them burned out at some point. Yeah. So, and they had to fix themselves. And it, uh, for many of them, it started from the gut. So can you maybe elaborate a little bit yeah. on, on the importance of this and why you took this mission? Yeah, well, let's, let's, how did we get here? So uh, uh, about after World War II, we um, keep an up and up until that point, we have to realize is that starvation was the, the, one of the most biggest challenges that humans had to experience based on, you know, famines and, you know, weather and temperature cycles that would impact the food supply chain. After World War II, there was a radical shift in uh, mass production of food in the mass distribution of food. And that involved monoculture farming. It involved uh, the variety of adding uh, chemical agents in order to preserve and to package and to go to the environment, which led to a next set of challenges, which were, you know, um, plants tend to be less resistant inside of those monoculture to uh, diseases and blights. And so there was the development of the whole biochemical industry of herbicides, pesticides, and fungicides. Now here's the, here's the challenge of that. When you grow food, and, I'm, and follow me folks with me because I'm gonna take you through how did we get here and why do we need to work on this? So up until that point, you ate food locally that was probably relatively fresh, had no chemical agents. There was no thing as organic and inorganic because everything was organic. And, and, and so now what happened is it's completely reversed because of air, you know, the technology advancements, the rise of the human race that we've gone through you know, added billions and billions of people to the planet and put a stress on the design, we had to come up with these ideas. And I'm not faulting anybody. I'm not saying it's a problem. I'm just saying there were un, there was unadvertised consequences to going down this chemicalization, this monoculturing, right? And so what happened is our food supply gave up protein in order to convert to enzymes to grow on mineral deficient soils on monoculture farming. And then we added these chemical agents in order to stabilize that plant so that people in the 1500s could live on bread because bread was 90% protein at the time and today it's less than 7%. And that has been the de-evolution of plants. And if you look at superfoods in our industry, most of the superfoods that people are eating are, are literally foods that have been growing independent of human interaction or intervention and, 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 a very, and, and have developed the uh, phytonutrient profiles and the uh, nutritional profiles that actually support it in those harsh environments. And so when we take it, there is a, a correlative benefit. A peach today, you would have to eat uh, 57 peaches to get the same nutrient quality of a peach in 1955. Think That's about amazing. that. <clears throat> so what also, also strikes me is that if you take wild foods like, um, if you take like a nettle, for example, a stinging nettle, um, like a handful of that equals like a huge plastic bag of lettuce. And we are promoting the fact that you should eat plant-based diets and, 
and your veggies, uh, there's a big difference what kind of veggie you're eating and if it really concentrated the nutrients into its uh, cell walls. Exactly. And, and that's, that's the part that people don't get because part of this whole process as we've advanced, we've kind of moved along this food production and distribution, government stepped in, they created kind of standards. I'm, you know, I have a nutrition background. And so we started going with our nutritional facts panel, which is protein, carbohydrates, uh, you know, and sugar content, and maybe a couple of vitamins or something, but hasn't dealt with the whole array of elements that requires the human body to function. And none of which have been developed on how does it function optimally. It was just like you said, to prevent disease. And so that varied around the world. So our definition of food became compromised. We actually, the way that we define food today in the modern world is suspect. And the, the, the lack of understanding of that definition has created a host of diseases which are now propagated and supported by large, powerful pharmaceutical corporations who profit from that and governments who get elected by supporting those agendas. That's just the way it is. And I think anybody that's done a little bit of research and looked, learned this or studied this stuff would, would have to say, you know, that's absolutely true. Now, again, I'm not here to condemn it. I'm not here to make a commentary about it. I'm just stating the facts. So today, now we've got 12% of the population in the United States, and I use this because you can carry it almost everywhere. 12% uh, of the emergency hospital visits are related to gastrointestinal conditions. So think about that. You think of heart disease or sorry, cancer or a car accident. Well, guess what? 12 of those people is because something's wrong with their digestion and they're in an emergency hospital situation. A quarter of the population is using digestive aids to get through the day. And uh, there's literally uh, tens of millions of people who are using prescription medications every day for things that could be corrected if they got their digestive order in, in, in together. And the reason why they're having those problems is there's three main areas in digestion that become a problem. Number one, there are no enzymes present in the food. And I'll get to that in a minute. Number two, the person is not producing enough hydrochloric acid, which is essential for disinfecting and a bunch of things. And then number three is uh, uh, a disbalance in the microbiome. Those three areas are the main elements of where digestion goes wrong. Now, my business partner is a keto guy. I'm a vegetarian. We're at the polar spectrums of dietary practices. I think you should choose the diet. I'm diet agnostic. I'm not a vigilante vegan. I don't care what people eat. I think people should just select the diet that works. For I, them. I think there's a beautiful way to explain it. It's a flexitarian. Yeah, exactly. You're flexible. You're not like uh, yeah. dogmatic when it comes to diets, but uh, yeah. definitely implementing strategies like in terms of a plant-based diet, I guess you are really increasing the diversity so that you feed different strains of bacteria in your gut instead of going for tofu all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, I, and I'm not a big advent of uh, soy-based products for a variety of reasons. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, now, now just because keto, it's a plant doesn't mean it's, yeah, it doesn't, just because it's a plant doesn't mean that it's good for you. Yeah. Now keto is very big because of, uh, more and more research into autophagy and, um, one of the, I mean, the, one of the biggest benefits is definitely weight loss. So diets have often been marketed as weight loss and there's always this another, yet another diet that's going to help you get rid of some of that accumulated weight. And within any diet, you can 
achieve that for sure if you know what you're doing. And yes. uh, some of those are more effective if you if you really accelerate accelerate fat burning. But I guess there is a big difference in terms of which one of those diets are sustainable over time. Like if you would go for a full-on hardcore carnivore diet, maybe maybe that can shorten your lifespan because of increased intake of growth hormones. I don't know, uh, activating IGF one. Um, or uh, if you take a plant-based diet, you can um, by making poor food choices, you can damage your gut mm-hmm. and get into autoimmune diseases. So, um, what is your take on this? Like, uh, how do you optimize the diet within a diet? Great question. And I think again, it goes down to what are the what are the elements that needed to be added into the food? So traditionally, when you were as humans would you know let's say exist before uh, the advent of production of food, you would eat food in your local environment. It wasn't preserved. So it had bacteria already present inside of that. So if you ate a carrot out of the ground, you got actually the supportive bacteria that went along with that carrot with the carrot. Um, And there was no chemical agents on that particular item. If you, uh, you know, harvested any type of food grains, it it was correlated with whatever that food product or whatever that environment could sustain. And obviously, through genetic selection. (laughs) In other words, if you had the right genetics for that environment, you survived and procreated. And if you didn't, you probably died as an infant or as a young adult. And and that sounds harsh, but that is how evolutionary selection. And then, you know, as cultures over great periods of time uh, started to develop the capacity to to handle the foods relative to their local condition. And, and this was proven by a fellow by the name of Chris Aceto, which he wrote a paper back in the 1990s. He was a top uh, bodybuilding nutritionist. And he, what he observed was the genetic variances between various types of people and the kind of diets that optimize their bodybuilding performance. And I thought that was interesting. So for example, if you take someone of Asian descent, um, they, because there are generations of, of survival mechanisms that there are people that metabolize rice very well. Uh, if you give me someone who comes from a European descent that you know was eating potatoes for three or four hundred years, I do really well on potatoes. Some people have potatoes and you know their blood sugar goes through the roof; they can't handle it or whatever. And so, a, a lot of a lot of people have to look. And, and now that we have genetics and epigenetic testing. Now we can just eliminate all the guesswork. It's been guesswork up to that or just observable science. I feel bloated when I eat this. Uh, But at the end of the day, originally we had bacteria present. And if we were eating plants or if you look at other animals, uh, they always eat their food in a raw state. So a bear eats salmon in a raw state. Uh, A a lion will kill a zebra. It eats it in a raw state. And if you go out and a cow or a horse will eat grass in a raw state. And what's, what a lot of things that they're looking for is actually there's enzymes and bacteria present that cor- correlate with that particular food. As soon as you heat something, you don't have enough enzymes. So what your body is forced to do, we, we've adapted very well, is that we have to produce our own enzymes. Now, what's interesting is the humans have a pancreas that are four and a half times larger than any other species uh, in the world relative to body weight. Well, why is that? Well, we've, we've cultivated dietary practice 
that requires us to manufacture a bunch of enzymes out of our system in order to sustain our ability to absorb, utilize those, you know, to digest, absorb, and utilize that food that we're taking in, cross over the intestinal barrier and make either energy units or make uh, building blocks. And so there is a metabolic cost to that. And that was well orchestrated by a guy by the name of Dr. Edward Howell, who talked about this in enzyme nutrition and food enzymes for health and longevity. And he, and he did all these experiments with animals fed enzymatically deficient diets versus ones that were. And by third generation, the ones that had uh, deficient, enzymatically deficient diets, uh, they, number one, started having weird genetic diseases. They started to experience strange sociological behavior and they lost the ability to procreate. Well, fast forward since the industrial commercialization of food production and since World War II, we're at third generation. We have an explosion of genetic related diseases. We have, uh, I would say, extreme deviations from traditional components of sociological behavior. And fertility clinics have popped up all around the world because people are having more difficulty in procreation. So to me, those, the, he actually outlined this back in the, in, the, in the 40s and 50s, that this was going to be the case for humans based on his research with animals, because you can obviously animals have a, 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 a shorter lifespan and you can test things out. So number one, I think is uh, by using exogenous enzymes, which are, should have been present in our food anyways, and oftentimes aren't, that's step number one of breaking down and absorbing. And enzymes are catalysts right. that are used in over 25,000 chemical processes in our bodies. Everything from thinking to blinking requires an enzyme. And I do believe I guess, that's weird. Yeah, go ahead. I guess, I guess that's the reason why people should go for fermented foods uh, more often in modern diet where most of the food is heated up. And uh, also occasionally go for um, raw plants, uh, that still have the enzyme and bacterial profile present that is uh, linked to that particular uh, species. Now, you're also producing uh, an enzyme product. So um, how is that uh, important uh, uh, to use? Like, um, does it make sense to take, uh, exec uh, uh, add, add to your supplement protocol enzymes and, and how does your product differ from the ones in the market? Yeah, great, great question. Well, I think it's pretty obvious that as a, one of the things when I ran into my own digestive health problems as a bodybuilder, you know, eating, consuming massive amounts of protein to support my dietary, you know, my performance things is I ended up getting into trouble. And what happened is one of the biggest contaminants inside the body or things that causes problem is undigested proteins. And I was not breaking down the proteins that I was consuming on mass and compromised my digestive system. And then that turned off, uh, began that undigested protein began to feed bacteria, uh, you know, or quote unquote bad bacteria, which have a variety of negative side effects. Any bodybuilder that has on a high protein diet and it's extreme dieting for an extended period of time can tell you what the negative side effects are: brain fog, uh, aching joints sometimes bloating, excessive gas, uh, a variety of skin issues. Um, there's a whole host of effects which are commonly acceptable in the highest levels of uh, performance-based bodybuilding. Uh, again, an extreme nature. So that happened to me. I ran into those problems. I met a doctor and it said, I need to rebuild myself and started using enzymes and the things that I advocate. So 
by super physiological dosages. And this is what I did. I'm, I'm going to give you the biohack right off the bat. I went to not just taking enough digestive enzymes that would digest my food. I went to, could I build up what's this enzyme potential, which Dr. Howell uh, reported that the enzyme potential of an organism, in other words, the total amount of enzymes available was inversely uh, proportionate to the length of life of that organism. And I was like, are you telling me that the amount of enzymes that you have present is going to determine the length of life? Well, would it also determine the performance capacity? So I did an experiment. Uh, I worked on this for four years. I took high levels of enzymes and capabilities and, and, and probiotics and these type of things. And after four years time, I was able to compete at the world championships on 85 grams of protein a day where other people are doing 250 grams. In that process, my business partner and I, Matt Gallant, uh, we developed a, a, a extreme version of a proteolytic enzyme, which is called Masszymes. It's enzymes for the masses. It's on its third generation. It's a combination of 17 different enzymes, uh, five different proteases, and proteases that work in all ranges of pH as the your food changes in the digestive tract. So 3.0, 4.0. Five, six These are relative to the pH levels. Right. And so from that, uh, we know that we were breaking down and digesting, absorbing and utilizing the proteins that we were consuming right out of the get go. So that number one would starve off the bad bacteria and also allow us to perform at a higher level. So what you did, you were able to reduce the protein intake to get the same results without destroying your gut that other people yeah. were doing. And I would say this, I got superior results because when I was competing again, I didn't have the brain fog. I didn't have the energy depletions. I didn't have the joint problems. And I didn't gain 42 pounds of fat and water like I did after my 2003 Mr. Universe contest in 11 weeks. I got out of that contest and had no side effects, no deterrence, no uh, explosion of weight and felt fantastic. And I was like, okay, now I'm on to something. I'm excited to start sharing this with the regular world. And, and that's when uh, I started working on the book, Staying Alive in a Toxic World. Wonderful. So, so in terms of um, probiotics, I mean, there is growing interest in the microbiome and there's definitely some of the more studied strains and less studied strains and different foods feed different bacteria in your gut. And there's also different strains of, uh, um, strains of bacteria as well. And, and overgrowth of any of those is probably not going to be very healthy. So, you got also into optimizing the microbiome and uh, figuring out how to, how to get that in order. So how did that go? Yeah, so one of the things that, one of the challenges with um, operating your microbiome, and we understood this 15 years ago, and I think we're entering into the golden ages of, of microbiome health or, my, or, or friendly flora or whatever you want to call that, you know, there's a variety of different names. But we understood one thing, and that was, based on your diet, whatever diet that you're following, your microbiome is constantly adjusting. And that's why there's usually a period of adjustment when you integrate any type of new dietary strategy. The more radical the dietary strategy that you implement from your current program, generally, the more um, extreme that some of the side effects or temporary changes might be. Sometimes that's extreme weight loss. Sometimes it may be gastrointestinal related things or skin issues. You know, people talk about the various things that happen when people go to a keto diet is it's probably one of the more extreme versions. 
they get keto rashes or things like that. And then, it's, and, and then all of a sudden the body adjusts. Well, what is that adjustment period? I do believe that is an adjustment of the bacteria. Some of those bacteria that were present before are dying off. And some of them that were present in smaller quantities start to grow and expand because they're being fed. And so your diet is going and, and where you live on the planet is going to determine a lot of the type of microbiome. There's like anywhere from 200 to 500 strains of bacteria inside your intestinal tract. And if you don't have them, you're literally dead. You will not live. It's a symbiotic relationship that you cannot live without these bacteria inside our bodies. Um, and they, you know, almost all your neurotransmitters, 95% are made inside your gut. Um, a great part of your immune system and the essential components are the final stages of digestion where you actually get the building blocks and the units that you require for energy are directly correlated with bacteria. They jack into your brains and they control our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, our neurochemistry, and it is a symbiotic relationship that we can't get out of. So in large of that, to kind of circle around, so we were like, okay, well, how do we develop a probiotic that is actually going to be beneficial for the widest range of people get considering the variants within all these different diets. And so we worked with a doctor and what he was able to do, he's able to take an aggressive strain of L plantarum. Uh, it's a, it's a, a particular strain of bacteria that's pretty aggressive. And it's oftentimes applicable to a lot of different people. Most people don't have a problem with, with L plantarum. Very few people would have a, a, a challenge regardless of the diet. Well, then we threw that inside a toxic soup. So that's what we live in today as humans. We live inside a toxic soup. So we put it in a, in a, in a toxic soup. We ran a sine wave through the toxic soup in order to keep the bacteria alive. Otherwise, they would have died. So we were literally biohacking the bacteria strains. And then what was left, the survivors that were left over, we then grew on special a variance of a variety of different mediums that would, would allow them to grow the best and made these super probiotics. So it's very much similar as, as what a Navy SEAL would go through in his BUDS training to go through all these extreme levels that they, you know, only the very best of the best survive. Then you feed them on the best possible nutrients. And those bacteria now have a very special provable claim. So there was a U.S. patent created around the product P3OM and that shows that it was antiviral, antiretroviral, protolytic, digest tumors, serves as a screening agent of pharmaceuticals and is maintainable in the gastrointestinal tract. And what it does, it eats undigested protein, starves out the bad guys, it attacks viruses, it attacks other bad bacteria, and uh, optimizes the, the gut by allowing the, as a transient strain, it doesn't colonize. So you don't get imbalances that you can from other strains it comes in. It does its work, it goes through the whole body, wipes out the bad guys, wipes out the undigested proteins, and moves on. Right. <clears throat> so, so enzymes and probiotics, uh, do you use like some prebiotics? Uh, what are your main source in food to feed yeah. those bacteria to make sure that they stick? Yeah, so when we're doing, for the encapsulization, some of the, what we grow it on and the mediums and stuff we use obviously are trademark aspects, but when it goes into the capsule, um, we just use those, what's called a stabilized rice bran, because um, that you freeze dry, you freeze dry the bacteria, so they're in a suspended state of animation, and then you just have enough rice bran in it that they'll stay alive for at least a couple years. But as soon as you put them inside the body where there's heat and moisture, 
those things come up. And so uh, the good news is that these particular bacteria can survive on sugar, they can survive on fats, they can survive on protein. That's why they're so robust. So inside of anybody's system, they'll be able to survive long enough to go do their work, uh, unlike other strains. Uh, as far as prebiotics, I try to get most of my prebiotics uh, from my diet. Uh, I think that you want to look at the kind of bacteria and the kind of digestive system that you're running and, and base your prebiotics on it. One of my favorites is just artichokes, actually. I make sure I have artichokes every day. That's, just, that's one of the more universally applicable ones. I have, a, as a vegetarian, I eat an extremely fiber-rich diet, so I'm, I'm pretty lucky in that standpoint. Um, I do believe that people who are uh, following more extreme diets, and I guess I'm on a, a, one version of extreme diet, but you know, with ketogenic, they would have to maybe alter that a little bit. But the L plantarum, the P3OM that we have, just crushes everything out there anyway. So we're, we're, we're keeping the bad guys beaten down. Right. Okay. So, so moving on, like you were listing like one, two, three, like what is, what is wrong? What, what is the second yeah. step? Yeah. Second step was uh, hydrochloric acid. So about, uh, you know, I'll share a personal story. So a number of years ago, I think five, maybe four or five years ago, I was uh, living in Bali, Indonesia, and I contracted a parasite. My naturopathic doctor said to me, hey, you know, Wade, I, I, you got a parasite. And I'm like, really? Is Yeah. So we were, and I had a whole thing. I almost got my eye eaten out by this parasite. It was kind of crazy. And I started wow. reading about parasites. I didn't know what was going on. But what it turns out is the, it, she said, yeah, we did a test and you're low on hydrochloric acid. Because I thought, hey, I'm Mr. Digestion. I got this figured out. And she goes, no, wait, you're, you're getting up there in your 40s. You know, you're not producing as much hydrochloric acid. Uh, what happens is that allows a lot of parasites or pa pathogens that can get through. And although you've been healthy and you're, you're able to survive, you're not at your optimal level. So she says, take massive quantities of hydrochloric acid. So I did. And I got rid of the parasite. And number two, is I noticed I felt better. I had more energy. I, 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 I was more vital. Uh, my skin got even a little better. And I was like, wow, there, there's something to this. So I started researching and it turns out that most people at the time they're 40 years old are only producing about 30% of the hydrochloric acid that they used to. And that is, that's 30%. what this 30%. And that's oh, what that's disinfects against Massive. other pathogens. Okay. And so a lot of people who have problems with uh, if you look at acid reflux and heartburn, it's not because they're producing too much acid, it's they're not producing enough. There's a little sphincter on the top of the esophagus uh, that it's called the, the lower esophageal sphincter that opens up. And when hydrochloric starts to come in, when it hits a certain level, it closes. Now, if you're not producing enough hydrochloric acid, the, the, the top stays open, you get fermentation, gas comes up, and then you'll get some of the hydrochloric acid to splash up and burn the esophagus and heartburn. So the doctor gives you an antacid. But the oh. problem is you're not producing enough. Those medicines are only supposed to be prescribed for four to six weeks and you're supposed to be on these proton pumps and things like that. And now people yeah. are on these chronic conditions of acid reflux and heartburn, which have all, all these things and all they can change is by adding hydrochloric acid to their diet. Yeah, I have some experience on that. I, I had a ulcer uh, eight years ago and I was prescribed proton pump inhibitors. And uh, after six weeks, it was not fully healed. So they continued the regimen. And that's, that was my kind of gateway drug into, into biohacking, really started 
studying and learning about proton pump inhibitors, why, why you have stomach acids in the first place and why it doesn't make any sense for long term, at least to reduce the amount. And uh, yeah, I also got into hydrochloric acid uh, later on once I was healing from it and uh, supporting my digestion um, as well as uh, bring down the inflammation that this kind of systemic stress-related um, issue was causing. So, so yeah, I have some experience on that. But may, my doctor told me that yeah, some people need to be on these proton pump inhibitors for a long time. And uh, yeah, if you want to have bacterial overgrowth or like you yeah. explained, like increased risk for parasites, yeah, go for it. Yeah, and that's, and that's what I think a lot of people don't understand is okay, now their acid reflux goes on, but now you've just opened the gateway for all sorts of pathogens. You've usurped your natural disinfecting mechanisms and you're going to be susceptible for other related illnesses. And you look at, there we go, we're back to 12% of the emergency hospital visits in North America are going into for gastrointestinal related issues. Yeah, and there is an increased risk for certain cancers even by by using some of these products right. that uh, mess the homeostasis of uh, your gut acids. So you have those for a reason, and the body is pretty good at keeping the score. So so what you're advocating is to is to use perhaps some digestive aids like hydrochloric acid. Um, what kind of foods would you specifically go for with something like that? How often would you do it? And uh, how would you keep yourself a check? You know, again, it's it's I, I I'm always a little concerned about uh, making dietary suggestions because it could be taken out of context or whatever. Sure. I think I think when a person looks at their genetics and epigenetics, they should eat relative to that's going to support that process. Second, they need to look at their lifestyle. Uh, I think one of the reasons why the the high fat ketogenic diet and also intermittent fasting has become so popular is that we've actually been able to reduce the load on our digestive systems and also to deal with sedentary lifestyles uh, because we're much more sedentary than our ancestors even you know 20 let alone 50 to 100 years ago it's radically different since then so uh for me uh natural whole foods foods that are devoid of herbicides, pesticides, and fungicides. So it's first elimination. Second thing is an observationary component is what foods seem to cause problems for me. Uh, I do add beets into my diet every day. I think beets are uh, strong. I have a giant salad every day with a variety of vegetables and I try to create what I call a rainbow salad. Nice. As many different colors as possible because of the phytonutrients and agents that we probably haven't even discovered in it. And I do find that that's very, very helpful. Um, the other thing is, is fermented foods. I think adding some fermented foods into your diet seems to have a positive effect for most people if it's relative to your diet. So if you're on a traditional kind of European diet, things like sauerkraut tend to work very good. If you're on a more Asian-oriented diet, things like you know, misu and kimchi and stuff might be more supportive uh, because these cultures have developed what I would say complementary uh, fermented food diets relative to that local environment and the foods that they're eating. Right. <clears throat> yeah. So, so uh, okay, hydrochloric acid and uh, uh, the 
the right building blocks for your diet in terms of uh, phytochemicals, um, uh, digestive enzymes, probiotics, uh, prebiotic foods. Uh, what else? Is there a key component still missing when it comes to and microbiome optimization? Is there something that, that you would also kind of add in terms of optimizing your gut health? I think those three things will cover probably enzymes, hydrochloric acid, and, and, and probiotics will cover probably 90% of the digestive related challenges that people might be experiencing. In fact, we, we've cultivated oh, literally over thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of clients. We found that you can really turn things around in within 90 days, 30, 60, 90, 90 days, you can almost rebuild your entire system. So outside of that, there are what I would say, um, relative uh, optimization things. So for example, if you're on a high fat type diet, we cultivated an enzyme formulation called Capex, which is four different lipases. Lipase is the enzymes that breaks down fats. Um, so if you have challenges on that diet or you want to optimize that diet, then adding strong amounts of lipase into that. If you're on a more plant-based diet, let's say is adding components like cellulase and hemicellulase into your enzymes. If you have challenges with gluten, you would add, uh, you know, dipeptidyl peptidase, which is the only enzyme known to actually really break down the gluten external cells. So we have a product based on that. And then on the other side of it, you would look at uh, herbal formulations to take out uh, parasites, particularly uh, a lot of people are suffering from those. So those would be those kind of adjuncts on top of once you've sorted out digestion first. How about something like candida? Like, I mean, a lot of people yeah. are suffering from it. Yeah, so here's the beauty of this, and I'll, I'll give a side note, not making any health claims, but I have hundreds and hundreds of people that have recovered from candida. We put them on an anti-sugar diet. Uh, we take out the sugar and the wheat products out of their diet. We put, uh, we put them on massive amounts of the P3OM because uh, it'll, it'll beat out those bad guy bacterias. Uh, we actually have them formulate a kefir out of coconut water and coconuts yeah. and a little honey, you mix it all together and you ferment this and then you eat this every single night. Uh, and if you're dealing with candida, particularly in the genital area, you actually put it on topographically as well uh, in extreme cases. And the results have been extraordinary around that. But any kind of anti-candida protocol, uh, you're not gonna be able to probiotic your way out of it exclusively. You're going to have to also eliminate the the agents that are going to feed that bacteria once it's got a good hold on your body. So you are going to have to go on an elimination diet for a period of time. What do you think about the research on candida striving on ketones so that people who go on a ketogenic diet might observe in the beginning, even uh, in flaring of, of their candida problems? Yeah. Well, once again, is one of the things that I have noticed uh, inside of any what I would call extreme dietary change and going from a regular diet to a ketogenic diet, in my opinion, is an extreme change. You'll, you'll go through this transitory period of anywhere from a few weeks to a few months. That is directly what I, there are responses from the bacteria cultures that are present in your system. And some of them are as quote unquote, are going to be angry and fight back. <laughs> you know, there, anytime that you subject any species to um, extermination, there is an increase in birth rates. It's, it, it, it happens in every species. Bacteria are no different. So anytime you do that, you are going to 
recognize that you're going to go through some sort of healing crisis and it's something you're going to have to monitor with the professionals who are helping you gauge this so you're outside of the realm of opinions and theories. Right. I, I guess you are not yet uh, um, advocating uh, stool transplants, but that might be a future biohack for some people who are... You uh, know, I, I've, uh, I've been on the periphery of that, and I've seen extraordinary results, and I've seen disastrous results. And so I think there is potential within that framework. I think there are ways to optimize kind of what I would say is a very radical process at the moment and certainly not that sophisticated, but we can learn from that. We, maybe we don't actually have to do the fecal implant. Maybe we can just extract the elements of that and do a, like, for example, what we do is uh, we became famous on Ben Greenfields for Matt, my co-founder sharing the Batman enema where we actually do these coconut, we fill coconut waters, we ferment the P3OM stuff and people are doing, uh, hanging up, doing an enema and then hanging upside down so that the probiotics could go through the entire uh, colon rectal area and into the intestinal tract. And we've had extraordinary results doing that with people. I'm not suggesting people do that. I'm not saying, I know everybody's going to want to try it's it. Like, that's experimental only to people like Ben Greenfield. <laughs> like <laughs> Correct. So yeah. the reality is, is, you know, there are going to be people on the radical edge. We learn from them. Some of them make radical things, but. Yeah. I also believe there will be advancements in delivery technologies that bypass the, the digestive system to a degree where, um, the probiotics can actually enter where they're supposed to be in. And, well, uh, and we're experiencing that right now. If you look at, let, let's just take a look at, for example, um, what's happening in naturopathic clinics. Like I have my ND comes over uh, to my house uh, every so often and gives me an intravenous delivery of a, of a super cocktail of, you know, elements and agents that uh, advance a variety of air, uh, functions in my body. And, once you've done one of those pushes, I can tell you, you're like, wow. Now, there is no way I could consume enough food or get it from any diet to actually get the same amount of delivery of those nutrients into my body. So we're actually experiencing that already. We just tend not to think about it. It's available in biohacking clinics all around. And, and if people don't believe us, go try it. <laughs> go, mm. get, go give a shot and see how you feel. And it's, it's extraordinary. Yeah, biohackers so are definitely, definitely pushing the boundaries and talking about the future of this type of technologies for optimizing digestion, what's in your horizon? Like, do you see things like genetic testing being combined with dietary or even supplement needs uh, so that we can fully optimize um, what's good for each individual? A hundred percent, that is where we're going. It's gonna be completely customized uh, nutritional, uh, dietary and programs from every component based on that individual. That That is where the future is. Uh, we're actually moving into that area with the gut brain access by very, very soon we're coming out with a product that actually combines a couple of technologies for brain chemistry hmm. by improving people's brain chemistry uh, through a combination of herbs and probiotics, which will stimulate the production of neuro uh, chemicals because there's so many people with disbalances in that. So we're starting on that uh, already. We're, that, that'll be early 2020, I think. Probably first month of 2020. Right. So um, I guess we are kind of getting to the end of this show. And yeah. at this stage, I would love to ask you 
kind of uh, where you come from, you have you have uh, really pushed your body to the boundaries, and uh, you are on an extreme diet on a on a on a plant based plant rich diet, which is definitely not very common in the biking world now, when everyone is on a some kind of mm-hmm. uh, meat based ketogenic diet, and uh, you have definitely gone. Uh, really deep into optimizing gut health um, to be able to um, get by with less protein to support your digestion um, and and uh, as you age also hack um, the detrimental effects of aging like the fact that your hydrochloric acid levels will drop over time now with your experience and wealth of knowledge which i really appreciate so far what i've heard and i'm really looking forward to your keynote at the biker summit um what are the things that um you want to share there um your, your your the presentation title is going to be how to supercharge your protein digestion muscle building and fat burning so all of those are important so what are people going to be hearing at the biker summit um in helsinki finland first first uh, of november um, and, and what can they learn from you? Yeah, we're going to teach people basically what are the key elements that allows them to optimize the diet that they're currently having to enhance recovery, enhance regeneration of the body. So anytime that you have a degeneration inside the body, it's because you're, you don't have a couple of elements. You don't have enough workers or you don't have enough materials. Okay. If so imagine your house is like a construction website and you know, proteins, carbohydrates, fats, uh, minerals and stuff. This, this is the piping, the, the, the roofing, the wiring and all that sort of stuff. But if you don't have any workers on the site, nothing gets built. And so the biggest piece that I think a lot of people have left out of the nutrition equation is what is actually doing the work? What are running the trucks, so to speak, to your cells? How are those being delivered and cultivated inside your system? Who is, what elements are trying to interrupt the delivery of that, those products, those nutrients, those energy units to the, the hundred trillion cells that are inside your body. So I'm going to break down based on what I've learned over the last 20 years in this particular era and how it applies not to any specific diet, but how it exp- expands to virtually every single diet because we're dealing with the mechanism of digestion and we're going to show people to optimize that. And then beyond that, we're going to show where is that going in the future and how this plays a role in the ultimate levels of biohacking um, and, and, and how, what the possibilities are. Uh, we're talking about radical changes in uh, recovery, radical ages in, in, in brain function, digestive health, uh, and the delivery of nutrients inside the body. What's the mechanisms on that and how that actually works so that they can make choices based on their own diet, which would be supportive of them. That's wonderful. So yeah, Wade Lightheart is talking at the Biker Summit first uh, of November in Helsinki, Finland. He's one of the morning keynotes. I'm really looking forward to his, his story and bio-optimizers will be there as well. So if you've been looking into getting your hands on these supplements, that will be first in Europe at the Biking Conference. Um, really looking forward to this. Thank you very much for coming. Um, Wade Lightheart, you have a big heart. Thank you very much for coming on. Thanks so much. We'll be right